0: Welcome back to The Text Lab, where every week we do a deep dive into the text. And our goal is simple. We want to help you unpack the Bible so that you can be a disciple who makes disciple. My name is Kyle Lundquist, and today I am joined by nobody. David Kral and Jake, they couldn't join me this week, so I'm here flying solo. So thank you for joining me. We are in the Book of Romans, and I just want to do a quick little review, quick overview to reorient our heart and our mind to the text. So Romans is a letter written to the Romans where Paul is explaining the gospel. So chapters one through three, we hear the bad news that all of us are sinners. Uh, Nobody is righteous. No one is good. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or a Jew. Everyone's in the same boat and it's sinking. All of us are condemned. And then halfway through chapter three, we start to hear the good news and Paul begins to unpack the gospel and reminds us that we find salvation in jesus and the salvation is available to everybody anybody who puts their faith in christ will be saved so chapters 3 through 11 he's unpacking the gospel and then once he hit chapter 12 there's a big therefore and paul says that in light of the gospel therefore we are going to live our life sacrificially we live our life to worship god Today, we're in chapter 9. So we are back in that section where Paul is unpacking what the gospel is. And chapter 9 is full of challenging, challenging stuff. This is a chapter that Christians have debated and argued about for centuries. And I don't have all the answers, but we're going to wait in nonetheless. Before we do, I want to just orient, again, our mind to... Maybe two of the reasons that this passage is so challenging for us. So number one, as we read chapter 9 in Romans, we bump into challenging ideas and concepts and words. So in our passage today, we're going to read about predestination. There's a, a phrase where it's quoting God saying, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. These are some, some words, some, some concepts that are just difficult to wrestle with to wrap our mind around them, to understand what Paul is intending to communicate. So that's sort of the obvious reason that Romans 9 is difficult. They're just difficult topics. But the other reason that Romans 9 is difficult for us to understand is that as Paul makes his argument, he lays his argument out, not by listing a five-point rational argument. What he does instead is he reaches back into the Old Testament to highlight Old Testament narratives And so Paul's argument is based on his understanding of the Old Testament. And so that means if we don't have a rich and robust understanding of these Old Testament stories, then it's going to be difficult for us to track what Paul is trying to articulate to us today. And I think a lot of modern evangelical Christians, our knowledge of the Old Testament and our understanding of those stories lags behind our understanding of the New Testament. I know that's true in my own life. And so it's difficult sometimes because in this chapter, he's going to be talking about Abraham, Isaac, Moses, Pharaoh, the Exodus, all these Old Testament people and stories. And and that's really how, that's what he's going to use to make his argument. And so it's really important for us to become maybe more familiar. So one of the best things you could do if you want to understand Romans 9 is go spend some time meditating on, reading, and studying some of these old stories. Um, One of the best ways I've found to do that is I've started listening to the Bible Project podcast. So some of you guys might be familiar with the Bible Project, but they've got a podcast that comes out every week and they are frequently diving into the Old Testament and it has helped me immensely to listen to that podcast and listen to John Collins and Tim Mackey. They're the guys on there and they're talking through Genesis and Exodus and it's been so helpful uh, to hear them connect dots in those Old Testament stories to the New Testament, to to talk about how those Old Testament stories are precursors and foreshadowing Jesus coming. So just a little tidbit to throw your way. If you're looking for a resource, I highly encourage you to check out the Bible Project podcast. But again, as you look at chapter nine in Romans, um, here's just a few of the Old Testament stories that we're gonna bump into. We're gonna hear about Abraham and Sarah and specifically the promise that God made to them in Genesis 12. We're gonna hear about Isaac, and Rebekah, and their children, Jacob and Esau. We hear about Moses, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's hard heart, the Exodus. We're going to read quotes from the prophet Hosea and the prophet Isaiah. So that's just in one chapter. Paul's going to hit all these different Old Testament narratives. And again, our ability to understand what he's saying here is going to be largely contingent on our ability to understand what was happening back then. So again, one of the best things you can do if you want to Learn more about Romans 9 is go chew on some of those old stories. But let's dive into this passage today. So the question that Paul is going to try to answer, and, and Paul is trying to answer a question. A lot of Romans, Paul is making nuanced, logical arguments where he asks a hypothetical question and then answers it. And then his answer leaves us with another hypothetical question that he asks and he answers. And so in verses 1 through 5 of Romans 9, Paul is lamenting the fact, he's heartbroken over the fact that his people, the Israelites, they have largely rejected Jesus, the Messiah. And so this raises a question. God's plan in the Old Testament, as you read it, is to bless the entire world and reconcile the world to himself through the people of Israel, Abraham's offspring, and so then as the Christ comes, and Israel is largely rejecting Jesus, this raises some questions. Is God's plan failing? Is God changing his plan? Was he going to work with Israel, but now he's not going to work with Israel? Should we be worried about God changing his plan on us? And so once we get to verse 6, he he answers this question that is implicit. And he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So you could imagine people wondering, hey, if Israel has largely rejected Jesus, does that mean God's word, his promises have failed? And Paul in verse six says, no, it's not as though the word of God has failed. And then we could ask, well, how is that possible? If Israel is largely rejecting Jesus and God planned to bless Israel and use them to bless the whole world, then how is he gonna continue in that plan? And then we just have to keep reading. So let me read the rest of this passage, picking up halfway through verse 6. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, there's a lot there, and as I read through that, I imagine it might just sound confusing. There's some quotations in there from the Old Testament. There's, again, a ton going on. And so here's the question we're going to answer, and the question I think that Paul is trying to, to answer. The question is, has God's promise and his plan failed because Israel has rejected Jesus? And Paul answers, no, God's promise, his word has not failed, and here's why. So you go all the way back to Genesis 12, and God's plan has always been, and was at that time, to bless one family, one people, and use them to bless the rest of the world. And that's still what God is doing today. But Paul is making this nuanced argument about who is truly in God's family. And so that's what he says. He says, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. He's saying not every Israelite is really part of Israel. And similarly, verse 7, he says, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And so he's saying just because somebody shares DNA genetics with Abraham, it doesn't mean they're really a true child of Abraham. And what he's getting at is this idea that runs actually from the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end. This This isn't even just a New Testament idea. And the idea is this, that, God's family has always been defined by faith and never been defined by blood alone. And so that's why God's promise and plan hasn't failed because God's promise and plan has always been to use a family and a people group to bless the nations, the entire world, but his family, it's not marked by Jewish blood, it's marked by faith. And you see this uh, laid out explicitly in the New Testament. So... Think of Mark 3. We encounter Jesus. He's preaching. And his own family, his biological family, they think he's crazy, basically. He's lived for 30 years as a carpenter. And then all of a sudden, he's decided he wants to be a rabbi. And he's traveling around preaching. And they think he's actually lost his mind. So there's a whole crowd listening to Jesus. And they're outside. They can't get to Jesus. And they tell the crowd, hey, tell Jesus his family's out here. And we want to take him home. And so the people say, hey, your family's out there. They want you to go home. And Jesus says this. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus is asking, who's my family? And then it says, he looked around those seated in the circle and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And so Jesus is reminding everybody that God's people, they're not defined by Jewish blood. They're defined by faith in Yahweh plays itself out through obedience. Paul nails the same idea in Galatians 5, verse 7. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And so again, he's saying the same thing in verse 7 in Romans. Children of Abraham, they're not just people who are descended biologically. True children of Abraham, the ones who carry this promise, they're people who live by faith. Jesus says something, again, similar in John 8, where he's talking to the Pharisees, and, and they're saying, hey, you know, Abraham's our father. And Jesus says, actually, no, your father is the devil. And he's reminding them that just because you have Jewish blood does not mean you're part of God's family, and in fact, you have aligned yourself with the enemy. And so Paul is trying to answer this question that maybe isn't always on our heart, but it, it is in the mind of the original audience in Romans and the question is, hey, if Israel's rejecting Jesus, does that mean God's plan has failed? And Paul is saying, no, because God's plan has always been to use a family to bless the nations. But that family, it's always been marked by faith. And so even when you read in the Old Testament, there's all sorts of people who don't share Jewish blood, but they're part of the covenant family and they're used by God. Think of Rahab. Think of Jesus' genealogy. There's a number of people who pop into Jesus' genealogy, who are used by God, who are part of his family, who are blessing the nations, but they're not Jewish. They're outsiders who become part of the covenant family. And so Paul's just reminding us, and and this is good for us to to chew on, that um, God's family and his people, they're marked by faith. And so we could pause and just think about what's the significance of that in our own life. And and I think... um, One of the significant things that stands out to me is that it's easy for us to read the Old Testament and think that it's not connected to our life today, but that's not true. Because according to Paul and Jesus, we are actually children of Abraham. Christians today who live by faith are sons and and daughters of Abraham. That's what he's saying in Galatians 5.7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are an inheritor of this promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12, where he said, I'm going to bless your family so that you can be a blessing to the nations." So that promise and that blessing is still ours to carry today. And so our job is the same job that Abraham, which is to go be a blessing to the nations. And that begins with our neighbors who live next door to us and extends all the way to the ends of the earth and so when we wake up in the morning we are part of this incredibly massive story that God has been telling from the beginning of time God is seeking to redeem a broken world and to call back to himself people who are lost and his plan to bring salvation and healing into the world is his people and today that's the church and so that's your story And that's a huge, beautiful story that we get to be a part of that orients and gives purpose to our life. And so I know when I wake up, it's really easy for me to just think that my life is about X, Y, or Z. It's easy to try to build my own little kingdom. It's easy to idolize things like comfort or success and to begin chasing those things as if those are the the story that we're part of. It's easy for us to want to write our own story. But God has invited us to live in his, his narrative. And so the question to ask each day when we wake up is, God, how are you inviting me to bless the world around me? And that could look like a hundred different things. But that's an, a question I encourage you to chew on and meditate on. Now, the latter half of this passage talks about how God has always chosen the people who are going to be part of his family You don't earn your way into God's family. And we know that uh, as we read passages like in Ephesians 2, where it talks about grace is this gift that God has given to us. It's not something we earn so that we can't boast about it. Um, But that was true in the Old Testament as well. You see God choosing to give the covenant blessing to certain people. And that's what he's getting at in verses 7 onward. So he talks about Abraham and... Isaac, um, and he talks about how it's through Isaac that Abraham's offspring shall be named. And what he's what he's doing there is he's quoting this one verse from Genesis, but he's trying to hyperlink back to the whole story. So as you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah, they actually have two children. Ishmael is the firstborn, but then God says Ishmael is actually not the one who's going to carry this covenant blessing. God has his own blessing for Ishmael, but the one who's gonna fulfill and carry the Genesis 12 blessing to be a blessing to the nations is Isaac. It's not Ishmael. And then something similar happens in the next generation. Um, Isaac and his wife, they have their own two children, Jacob and Esau. And right at the end, it says that, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. And what he's talking about there is who receives the covenant blessing. And it's Jacob, even though Jacob is the younger one. He's the one who God chooses to carry out this blessing. But here's the really important thing for us to chew on. And what what this passage is trying to get at, it's made explicit when you look at verse 11 and and God is saying, I choose who's going to carry this covenant blessing, who's going to be included in my family. And he says it has nothing to do with them being good or bad. He says he picks Jacob though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. So Jacob doesn't carry this covenant blessing to go be blessed by God and then bless the nations. Jacob doesn't receive that because he's good. And actually, as you go look at Jacob's life, he's really not very good. He's incredibly deceptive. Right from the get-go, his name actually means something like usurper. And then he lives into his name, deceiving his father pretending to be his older brother to try to trick his dad into getting the blessing. Then he goes and he deceives his uncle. Later, this deceptive trait is passed down to his children. His children deceive him and lie about how their brother Joseph is dead, even though actually what happened is they sold Joseph into slavery. Jacob's not a good dude, but God picks him to be part of his family. And so there's something really humbling for us to meditate on as we read that. And something encouraging to be reminded of. And the encouragement is that you are not included in God's family because you're good. It's because God is merciful and he is kind and he has chosen to adopt you. And so that's that's refreshing and encouraging to my heart. Because even though I know that cognitively and theologically, it's easy for my heart to start feeling like, maybe I can earn God's favor, his love. Maybe I can kind of like chip in with some of my goodness. Like, I know it's mostly God that's saving me, but maybe if I, you know, I'll try to be good as well and add to it or whatever. And we know that's not right, but some of that stuff is lurking in our heart. But as we read this, we're just reminded that we are saved by grace alone. We are adopted and included into God's family because of his kindness and his love alone has nothing to do with what I do. And so there's something refreshing in that. I don't have to earn it. It's something we want to preach and tell others that, hey, if Jacob's included, if Paul, Paul is murdering Christians before God calls him and adopts him and invites him into his family. If those guys can be included, then for sure you can as well. And so we can, we can use a passage like this to remind people that it's not about performance or being good enough. Um, it's about hearing God's voice and responding to his invitation of grace. Um, And then there's something humbling there to just remember that those who are in God's family, we are no better than those who are not. And one of the worst things we could do is what Israel falls prey to often in the Old Testament is to begin to look down our noses at others judgmentally and to think that we've somehow arrived spiritually. And so this passage breathes humility into our heart, reminding us that the only reason we get to be part of God's family is is because God is kind and invited us, uh, us in. So those are some good implications, I think, for you to continue to meditate on and chew on or discuss with others, to just meditate on the fact that God's fa- first, that God's family is defined by faith in Christ, not by our DNA or our blood. Or we could say that it is blood that actually allows us to be a family, but it's it's not... Human biological blood it is the blood of Jesus and anybody who shares in the blood of Jesus is part of his family. So that's worth chewing on, meditating on, talking about. And then it's also worth continuing to ponder and, and just be grateful for the fact that God's grace is gifted to us. It is not merited. That was true for Jacob way back in the day. It was true for Isaac and it's true for us today. So that was a lot. I hope you could track with me, and I would love to, yeah, I'd love to, if you have questions that have arisen, I'd love to find you on the patio and talk through it. Really grateful for you tuning in to listen, and whether you're working out, at the gym, you're cleaning your house, you're mowing your lawn, you're driving your car, whatever you're doing, hopefully this helps you dive into this very challenging passage. You may be left with more questions than answers, and that is okay. Tim Mackey, the guy I was referring to earlier, he describes the Bible as a meditative text. And I love that. And what he's what he's getting at is the fact that the Bible is the kind of book that you, you can't just read it once and get everything that's in there. You have to read it over and over and over again and meditate on it and think about it and ruminate on it. And as you do that, we mine and receive more and more and more truth. It's a storehouse. And the more often we come and sit before scripture, the more truth that we'll discover. And so this is for sure one of the passages that we have to meditate on over and over and over again. So as always, do your own prep, and I encourage you not just to take my word for it, but to dive into the passage, let the Spirit lead you. Thank you so much for joining, and we'll catch you next time on The Text Lab.